Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, y'all. Welcome to Punching Out. My name is Noah, and I am here with Karen. Good afternoon. And Rich. How are we doing? And today, we'd like to bring back a topic that we first discussed on episode 26, Disaster Capitalism and Puerto Rico. I don't think I need to tell you too much more about what that episode was about, given the title. But basically, we talked about how the U.S. and corporate entities are using a particular brand of crisis management in order to take control of Puerto Rico's land, resources, and people. And during that episode, Rich said something that kind of cut to the quick of uh, what's going on with all of this rigmarole that the U.S. is making Puerto Rico go through, which was something along the lines of disaster capitalism is ultimately about stripping workers of their rights. So today, we'd like to talk about a very specific event that happened over this summer where the Puerto Rican territorial government and the federal government collaborated to do just that. Rich? So Puerto Rico uh, customarily has had pretty robust labor protections and pretty robust labor laws uh, under what was called Law 80, which gave, you know, sort of your basic fundamental labor protections, right to participate in a union, Unions had a right to collect dues from workers who were in the unions. Uh, you had mandatory time off, mandatory, you know, minimum wages, mandatory Christmas bonus. Interestingly enough, and in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, among the other things stripped from Puerto Rico, which you know Noah laid out, you know, resources, land rights, uh, labor rights, with embedded in Law 80, were pretty definitively stripped down and made to line up with. Uh, more or less right-to-work statutes in America. So the the junta that controls Puerto Rico, thanks Obama, how did they put it? They didn't repeal it. They uh, modified it, I guess. Yeah. Modified Law 80, so it's no longer a, a law against unjust labor practices. It's now a law that basically codifies unjust labor practices. So, so the main, they just gave it a few tweaks. Gave it a, a few tweaks. Few and what, tweaks. what turned a labor law, turned a labor law into an anti-labor law. So Basically, the, so the the big change is, of course, that at will employment is now the law of the land in Puerto Rico. That had not been the case before. At will employment basically means that an employer can fire an employee with, without cause, subject to federal civil rights legislation, but effectively with no limits. So there's no more protections. The, the Puerto Rican Senate succeeded in modifying a little it a little bit, so it only applies to new hires. So anyone who currently has a job in Puerto Rico is still kind of governed under the previous law, but uh, if they lose their job or they have to go to try to find another job, they're at that point subject to at-will employment. So in practice, that's the future. So that kind that's that's a very typical sort of two-tier system right. that you see in a lot of labor negotiations. Um, since, not in the case of this law, but with labor union contracts, what you'll often find is management saying, well, for new hires, we need to have no pension plan or we need to have lower wages. And what they're banking on in the case of contract negotiations is that current members will feel protected enough to throw new members to the wolves. The modification of the law, as the president of the Puerto Rican Senate is referring to it, he explicitly said, we did not repeal Law 80. We protected the rights of workers, which is false on its face. What it's, it's only true if you're like a member of the Heritage Foundation. Yes. Yeah, you protected workers from the evils of unions and, and regulations. apparently. Yeah, and government. But I'm going to issue a small correction here. The law as written applies only to employees who have 15 years or more on the job. Right. So it's even a two-tier it's, – it's not only a two-tier system. The tiers are just brutally split. Right. If you have less than, if you have fewer than 15 years experience on your job, you are subject to the new legislation as of 2019. Wow. So they didn't even grandfather in everybody. Nope. 
sort of reminds me where I'm sitting in the mainland U.S. today. Um, this really creates a generation gap in people's working paradigms. So, like, I'm a Gen Xer. When I talk to my parents or people in my parents' generation, they honestly have no idea the paradigms of work that Gen Xers, millennials, and younger people are living and working in. So they'll still say things like, well, if you work hard, you'll graduate from that minimum wage job yeah. into a living, well, they don't even call it a living wage, but you know, you'll get a job mm -hmm. and a career. And that's, that's, if you work hard enough, that's what's going to happen. So it seems like in Puerto Rico, I mean, I think Puerto Rico is a much stronger community that is a little more quickly able to see through that kind of um, inequity built into the system. Yes, especially in the sense that those protections were built in. So Law 80 is from 1976. And beyond the mandatory Christmas bonus, which I can tell you employers in Puerto Rico have been complaining about <laughs> basically since I was born, which I should clarify in case you haven't heard the previous episode, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I moved up to Rochester in 2007. There should be a mandatory bonus at every holiday. Yeah. I agree with that, especially with all the new holidays that were created in a couple of Punching Out episodes ago. Or the holidays that like <laughs> advertisers created, like National French Fry Day. We should get a bonus. So we can go buy French fries. I agree with that. Yeah. Absolutely. So there was the mandatory Christmas bonus. There's mandatory, uh, I think it's 28 days or 27 days of paid leave. There's maternity leave. There's a bunch of other employment protections that are baked into or were baked into, rather, Puerto right. Rican labor law. And that the junta basically decided they needed to all be extirpated to allow Puerto Rico to, oh, I don't know, uh, they use some purple prose for it, like... Um, growth. Growth, labor market. Progress, labor market, yeah. Invisible hand, blah, yeah. blah, 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 <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Sure. E economy, I don't even know. Words we've all made fun of on this podcast numerous times. Deservedly. I think it's important to note so what you have in Puerto Rico is an unelected body who's... Again, thanks, Obama. Yes, and Lemonol Miranda, but let's not go there. Um, <laughs> um, whose members are appointed by the president, by the leaders of uh, the majority and minority in Congress, which basically means they're appointed by whichever super PACs control those uh, leaders. And they basically, they're not required to live in Puerto Rico. They're not required to even spend the majority of their time on the island. They have no clue what effect their policies are producing on the island, except for some hugely abstract idea of they may someday return Puerto Rico to becoming the prominent labor market that it once was, which mm. I'll remind you, Puerto Rico has had exactly 29 days of autonomy under its belt between, oh, I don't know, 1492 and now. Right. What, what does that mean, like Puerto Rico's former labor market, like sugar serfdom? Well, I mean, slavery yes. is a really yeah, slavery. beneficial labor market for people who have labor markets. Exactly. And that's exactly what it is. There's, um, I, I don't want to get too broad too fast, but you've had Puerto Rican agriculture has seen an actual resurgence in recent years as people kind of figured out that the soil on the island is good. It's volcanic soil. Mm -hmm. And you can use it to raise a number of things that aren't sugar cane and coffee, which were the two big Puerto Rican crops. So they've started doing things like mushrooms and uh, leafy greens and what have you. And the Puerto Rican government, I think again this year, if not last, tried to pass a law, and I think successfully passed the law, that disincentivized multiculture. Yeah. So it was supposed to be you're only allowed to do one kind of crop, which is, it's not a, number one, it's not good farming. Mm -hmm. And number two, it's not good business. And number three, why are you, if, if you're trying to turn Puerto Rico into this free market paradise, why are you not letting these farmers exercise their rights as free market ears? You know? Well, right. it, also, it also sets up the next disaster. Exactly. So right, a, yeah. a crop that does badly in certain weather conditions this year could completely decimate. So basically you're always held in complete vulnerability. I think that's a really important point because it would be one thing. It would be bad enough if the 
quote unquote modification or tweaking or whatever turn uh, the morons who supported this law in Puerto Rico, this modification um, used for it. It would be one thing if that was the limit or the horizon. But according to the Fiscal Oversight Board, it isn't the horizon. It's just the first step. Yeah. Mm. To them, this was, to be sure, an important step, but it was only the beginning in how to regulate and and restructure the Puerto Rican, there's that word again, market, so that Puerto Ricans wouldn't be unemployed, so that Puerto Ricans wouldn't be on Medicaid. A bunch of things that, again, are conditions that are created by U.S. involvement on the island right. in which the U.S. is now utilizing their little unelected control arm and their little control politicians on the island to enforce and expand. Right, yeah. The U.S. creates inequality in Puerto Rico and then uses inequality as an excuse to govern Puerto Rico undemocratically. Yeah. And it really, we really, we can't underscore enough just how undemocratic this fiscal control board is. It's subject to some very limited oversight from the Puerto Rican government, but if they refuse the Puerto Rican government to implement any of the uh, the mandates of the fiscal control board, the fiscal control board can sue them in federal court and you can imagine how that will turn out. So I mean, the courts can impose anything the fiscal control board wants to do, pretty much. Like, they're called the fiscal control board. Like, do they not even, like, that'll raise the hair on the back of your neck. I mean, yeah, it, it's, yeah. Or, it's Orwellian. The fiscal control mm-hmm. board. It's Orwellian. It's dystopic. Uh, yeah. No, I think that's why it was such a linguistic coup to start referring to it as the junta, because right. that's a word that has very pejorative associations in English. It it is literally just a Spanish word for a board, right? Mm-hmm. A, a junta can be any you know any organization can have a junta. It can but, be benign, yeah. But in English, it has such negative associations that it was absolutely a great idea to start calling this thing the junta. Mm-hmm. It made it sound immediately a thousand times even worse than fiscal control board, right? Makes it sound yeah. Fiscal control board sounds responsible. Uh, Junta sounds yeah. authoritarian. Sounds like evil. a bunch of wonks and nerds right. with like, and I'm know. sure that I'm sure that's how they imagine themselves. Like we're just, oh, yeah, we're just well trained people doing what's best for Puerto Rico. We're objective. We, and we're, yeah, we're objective and neutral. Clinical Americans. Clean. One of the guys, I, I don't know if he's still on there, but one of the original seven members of the junta was a guy from I want to say a university in Pennsylvania whose specialty was in trying to reinterpret United States law as an artifact and descendant of biblical law. <laughs> that was the kind of person that you were putting that, that – and this was, as you've said twice but, now, Rich, By the time this episode airs, he will be on the Supreme Court. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was under Obama. That was one of the original yeah. seven appointees. And this is the quality of person you're getting. The current executive director – a few years ago was um, Minister of Finance in Ukraine. A country known for its fiscal stability. And-, <sighs> and and it's one of these things where it really is a collection of the absolute – all of these people are nothing but political hitmen for the United States government. Isn't the Secretary of Education from Philadelphia? Uh, or it's something. Yeah, no, she's, she's definitely not from Puerto Rico. Yeah. And – as we said on the last episode, her explicit model for education was post-Katrina New Orleans. Yay. So what, what you've That's had is a series. So well. No, absolutely. What you've had is a series of people who have no connection to the island and no interest in improving its conditions. And the last time I was there, I happened to talk to my father about what PROMESA, the law that created the junta, was intended to be. And to Puerto Ricans, it was sold as a law that would finally enable them to hold the government accountable for a number of things that have genuinely happened over the past 20 to 30 years where government money has disappeared into all manner of, you know, little nooks and crannies and the the quote-unquote fraud and waste thing that you always hear for once was actually sort of playing itself out in real life and nobody was really doing anything about it. And so Puerto Ricans supported the law, uh, who supported the law, were thinking, well, this will finally enable us to hold the government accountable for all of these expenditures that it's not explaining and that our politicians are clearly misusing funds that are meant to go to our schools and our roads and all of these things. And we're finally going to get to tell to make them tell us where did all of it go. And instead what it's created, which if you have any knowledge of the U.S. relationship with Puerto Rico – 
you would have known this was coming, is, again, an undemocratic, unelected, completely appointed, completely federalized bunch of seven people who get in a room and get to determine the destiny of 3.5 million people, none of whom they know, none of whom they care about. On that very serious note, I think we are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the fact that we are one year out from Hurricane Maria. And the President of the United States has just announced that all of the death toll information is a big scam. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to uh, Punching Out. The impetus behind recording this episode is that the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria striking Puerto Rico has come and gone, so we wanted to appraise uh, the situation on the island since then. We've covered, and we're still going to cover, the disaster capitalism laws that have been passed in its wake. Uh, But for this segment, we really wanted to focus in on the, the consequences of Hurricane Maria itself and the very real political dispute over the death count and how bizarre and disconnected it demonstrates the federal government is from the situation on the ground in Puerto Rico. So the initial death count on the island after Hurricane Maria was almost impossibly small, like unimaginably, like in the the dozens. It was like 64 people. 64 was the max. And then everyone in Puerto Rico was saying, there's no way that's true. Uh, So the government did commission uh, George Washington University and Harvard University in, in collaboration with the University of Puerto Rico to... Uh, look into the updated death count using more standard metrics of what counts as a hurricane death. And the number they arrived at was a much more atrocious 2,975 Puerto Ricans died as a direct consequence of Hurricane Maria and its aftermath. So the hurricane hitting the island, the the electric grid going down afterward, the collapse of infrastructure, all those things as a consequence of the hurricane were calculated into it. And you know the number is still probably an undercount, frankly, but it much more collect, uh, captures just how devastating Maria was uh, for Puerto Rico. And then after that number published by the federal government came out, our very normal president had some tweets. 3,000 people always. did not die in two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico, he asserted. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by that by much. Then a long time later, they started to report really large numbers, like 3,000. Then he followed up. This was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. If a person died for any reason, like old age, just add them to the list. Bad politics. And then, of course, helpfully, it's, I love Puerto Rico. Yes. we we. I'm sure Puerto Ricans felt that love in the form of Paper towels. We remember how much air. he loved Puerto Rico by the, the the paper towels he was throwing around. It's Again. almost as if the paper towels didn't save people's lives in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. Yeah, and it's almost like those billions of dollars of paper towels just sat in warehouses and rotted and didn't get effectively mm-hmm. distributed. And it's almost like the paper towels were the second choice to canned chicken. Yeah. Okay, now that we've <laughs> so, okay, done that. A little explanation for people who didn't really closely follow the paper towel story. <laughs> so when you say paper towel, you really mean like paper towels sitting and rotting in warehouses, you mean food. Like, food, yes. right. construction supplies. <laughs> yeah. Like this this thing is mis- mismanaged intentionally, I would argue, yeah. from go. Oh, 100%. There is no part of the disaster response to this that wasn't done with the greatest lack of of precision yeah. possible. I've often thought that sense of omission are in some ways actually worse than sense of commission. And that is definitely the case here. Right. As little mental effort was devoted to Puerto Rico as possible by basically anything above local authorities. And even because, then. Yeah. If there were, okay, there are 78 counties in Puerto Rico, right? Yeah. For there to be six to 18 deaths, there would have to be something like, what, like a sixth of a death per mm-hmm. county or something? Yeah. Three sisters died in one house alone in one town. 
and one of the and I I'm sorry, Rich, I keep screwing this up for you. Um, this is a little bit of off mic action you're getting here, but there were actually the George Washington studies were commissioned by the Puerto Rican government. The Harvard study happened before and used different statistical analysis methods. Okay. And they came up with a figure that's actually 4,645, uh, which is why the Puerto Rican government incredibly hastily said, George Washington University, please come over and do a different study that has better conclusions and uh, makes us look less bad. But well, I, I, just, I also want to say um, there's something really... I understand why the studies are important, and it's important. It's very important to have a counter narrative based in actual numbers um, to what Trump is saying. But I also want to say, like, f from a phenomenological standpoint, from an individual person standpoint, if you lost a loved one, that's devastating. Right. If mm -hmm. it if the number was two hundred, if the number was seventy seven. You, we still need to have a response that helps to rebuild Puerto Rico. And I think that we've all sort of been duped by a neoliberal emphasis on numbers to determine how we feel about something and what our responses should be. And that's not fair. It's not, you know, if, if one person is beaten by police, that's their experience of the police. And that is their definition of the police. And it's not enough to say, well, but most of the time things go well. And I feel the same way about the death toll in Puerto Rico. It is devastating. It is important to, have, to know what the number is. But it's also important to say it's devastating, regardless of the number. And you need only look at overhead shots of Puerto Rico or walk in a neighborhood um, to see that the devastation is not also can't be reduced to deaths. Both of which I've done recently. The 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 adage you hear up here is that in San Juan it's fine. It's pretty much everywhere else that's uh, troublesome. And having flown into Puerto Rico, the number of tarps that are still doubling as roofs one year out from Maria is, um, I think I can say this on the radio, what's that New York phrase we all know and love? Too damn high? Mm -hmm. The effects, and I think this is a very important point, Karen, that you're bringing up, the emotional and psychological effects of Maria would be devastating regardless of the death count. The mayor of Yabucoa, which is the, the county where the hurricane entered Puerto Rico, whatever word you want to use, um, mentioned that in the months since calls to the town's suicide hotline mm -hmm. had exponentially multiplied mm -hmm. and that he was dealing personally with cases of people trying to jump off bridges or ledges or whatever. So there is a very real human dimension to this that I think you're absolutely correct. This obsession with the death count misses and I do want to emphasize that uh, for Puerto Ricans, you know, they're aware that this is a proxy battle mm -hmm. for what's really going on, which is that the government won't give them an accurate picture right. of events as they stand. The government commissioned that George Washington study twice. The first time the death count figure wasn't high enough. And so they very quickly realized that it wouldn't be fully accurate. And so they asked them, can you make sure that this is the right idea? And in doing so, continued to funnel money to a bunch of American researchers who, again, have no interest on the island except what they're being paid to be interested in. As far as I know, these are not people who had any kind of profound connection to Puerto Rico, and yet they're getting to determine a very real part of the picture for Puerto Ricans. And I think Puerto Ricans are reacting to that exactly as a human being would, which is... Um, We'd like to know the numbers, but we want to know the numbers because it is important that you tell us the truth as the political authority on the island. Yeah, the, the kind of top-level takeaway, I think, from the death count really is just the extent of the way the government bungled it. Uh, and again, this is by design. This is not like, oh, they made an accident. They, you know, they... A boo-boo. Yeah, they screwed up. They had no intention of supporting Puerto Rico's hurricane preparedness. They had no intention of supporting Puerto Rico 
uh, in the aftermath of the hurricane, uh, hurricanes striking Puerto Rico, by the you know as evidenced by the fact that the grid, the electric grid in the island just came back online within the last month, like almost just before the year anniversary, they finally finished it. Mm-hmm. So in, in preparation for this episode, I had gone looking for a David Brooks article to parallel our previous episode because I figured being David Brooks, he would have had something awful to say about. Uh, oh, this is actually good for Puerto Ricans. They can, you know, rebuild their island in, you know, the in my in image. better in my image in the better <laughs> way. But actually, and I think this really shows just how <laughs> awful it was. I, the one thing I found David Brooks saying was basically Donald Trump doesn't care about Puerto Rican people. Even David even David Brooks is on the side of the angels of this one. So this is you know, I mean, how David far Brooks how is, gone we are. David Brooks is famously the uh, Kanye West of the New York <laughs> of Times the New York op-ed. Times establishment. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's it is striking, given the image I think of successful efforts in emergency response that the U.S. tries to cultivate or U.S. political culture tries to cultivate, it is striking the level to which they completely on every level failed Puerto Ricans. And I think um, something that's sort of the, the through line of these past two segments is that all of this stuff that they're doing now, the repeal of Law 80, the removal of pension plans from college professors, the turnover of the public education system to charter schools, all of this stuff. They tried doing this when I was a kid and still lived there in 2006 and got nowhere. They tried this in 2016 and 2017 and got nowhere. And suddenly after Hurricane Maria, because people are no longer many people anyway, are no longer able to engage in the political process to the degree or to the uh, impact that they were able to engage with before, they are now able to ram all of this legislation and all of this policy envelope through without essentially checking with anybody whom it's going to affect. Right, yeah, people are just struggling to survive. Like you said, tarps on the the roofs, trying to rebuild – and it's hard to when you're you know dealing with your own fundamental survival, this kind of high politics of the island become very difficult for you to tap into and influence in any way. And then also you know let's talk about the fact that Puerto Ricans are migrating out of the island just for survival purposes. You know they're looking for opportunities in Florida or elsewhere to mm-hmm. uh, just live. And so you know once you're not on the island, it's very difficult again to tap into the politics and have an impact, even though it does impact you. And mm-hmm. so one of the things I think you guys are really talking about, as much as we can joke about the iconography of Trump's indifference, right? And yeah. it's sh- really shocking. Uh, even for Trump. Even for Trump, brutally shocking res- public responses. Um, I think one of the thing, one of the reasons that we're doing this follow-up show and that we did the original show is to say, Trump has collaborators. Sure. And those collaborators have been at this for 30, 40, 50 or more years. Those policies, the approach to labor, the approach to public education, um, the sort of picking apart of Puerto Rico for capitalist interests, that's a legacy that is as brutal as a careless tweet. It's just that it's really hidden that we've been swimming in the neoliberalism soup um, for so long that it's not noticeable in a day-to-day confrontive way in a lot of people's lives. In a lot of people's lives, they are confronting it in a day. In fact, I would say that for any of us who are white, privileged, middle class on up, the shocking day-to-day devastation of the Trump administration is a lot of people's daily lives already. I, I think that's a very important point because I remember the day after the November 2016 election talking to a friend who said, you know, this is, uh, how can this happen in this country and so on. And I'm thinking to 99% of the politicians I knew about in Puerto Rico who are all, uh, many of them just Trump-like buffoons without the money, and I'm thinking, this is the choice that my that that the voters I knew have faced my entire life. 
this is finally happening to you. If anything, on some level, I'm happy the 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 chickens are finally coming to roost. Yeah, the, the continuities are important. Like I, I made a point of emphasizing that the junta was not a Trump innovation. That was an Obama mm-hmm. administration imposition on Puerto Rico, and it, and Obama didn't even perform like, oh, I'm doing this difficult but necessary thing. He he sold it as this is a necessary positive ultimately good thing for puerto ricans because that's what he believes yeah he believes austerity and neoliberal reforms are good for people and especially you know know, he can't come out and say it but hispanic people who need to pull up their pants right you know work harder and not enjoy so uh you know not drink their cerveza (laughs) and play their loud music at all hours of the night which is what we talked about the last time with uh, David Brooks and that Krista McQuarrie article where she literally wished for a hurricane to hit Chicago. Right, yeah, the, the hurricane yeah. reformed the the culture of poor people, and that that's a good thing. That's yeah. that was the 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 under the overtone of these these articles, and it really is. I think you're absolutely right to point out that that's the purpose of the junta. Really, mm-hmm. it, you don't see these in in other states. You know, with the notable exception of Detroit, which again majority people of color population mm-hmm. and gets subject to anti democratic controls. And the way they justify it is these people don't know how to govern themselves. They have to be governed. It's explicitly colonial. Yeah. These yep. people don't know how to govern themselves. Look how badly they respond to austerity colonialism. Right. Exactly. And I, I think bringing up Detroit, um, that that's, that's a point that I've often made. Um, the automatic solution for Puerto Rico for many people up here who, again, I think are very well-meaning people in general is statehood. And my response to that is always Detroit. It Detroit's in a state. Yeah. New yeah. Orleans was was and is in a state. If you don't have the right people living in the city, the right people according, let me be real clear about this, to the David Brookses of the world, you're not important enough to care about. Right. Nobody is going to give you political power because you happen to have changed your method of political organization. And I don't want to get too far into a pro-independence rant right now, but I think it is important to point out that a lot of even people whose heart is in the right place when it comes to Puerto Ricans um, sort of bungle the the structuralism of it because these are the same people who are saying, well, it's good that 100,000 Puerto Ricans have moved to Florida because they'll vote for Democrats. Right, yeah. I wanted to talk about that when we talk in the third part of the segment that – it's a ridiculous it, it, thing. It shows the condescension the political class has toward us, people. Yeah. But it having kept up with the Florida election, it's not Democrats who are making outreach to the Hispanic population there until very, very recently. It's the Koch brothers. Right. It's Rick Scott. Those are the people – when you see politicians from Florida standing with Puerto Ricans, asking them what they need, trying to help them – cynically for votes but actually you know doing politics such as it is it's republicans they're the ones actually going out to do some measure of support instead of just expecting those votes to come their way so wait wait i'm sorry i lost my trail of thought a little bit so you're saying that some people are saying it's good that puerto ricans are coming to the mainland because it's it'll change the demographics of voting yep It'll, it'll contribute to the blue wave. That's the... Yes. Oh, so Puerto Ricans are only, you know, it, it's bad that they're off. It, it's bad that they lost their homes or lost family members or lost gainful employment or lost anything that would allow them to derive sustenance on the island. And by the way, a lot of those people were just evicted from their housing right. by FEMA because FEMA won't fund them anymore. Mm. Tremendous agency, I'm sure. Great agency. Run the best. Um, heck of a job, FEMA, once yep. again. Just doing heck of a job since 2005. <laughs> but to them, this the, the sort of like light at the end of the tunnel. And I do think for a lot of these people, it's a way to sort of cope with the devastation mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. tragedy of it all. It's to say, well, at least maybe they can get revenge on the government that bungled it. But it's like By these are human beings. By voting for, de- for, for Democrats, exactly. Like, like I've been saying... It, like, what difference would it make if Democrats were in power? I doubt the system would be any different we've for Puerto Rico. We've, we've, in fact, I'm assured it would be exactly the same. It would be yeah. no different. And I think this is – I'll probably end up bringing up this book uh, more before we finish this episode. But one very clear sense 
if you get a chance to read Naomi Klein's The Battle for Paradise, um, it came out over the summer. It's a very slim book. It's a very light read. You can get through it in a few hours. But it is an excellent rundown of the last 10 to 15 years of colonial policy, because that's what it is. And it makes the explicit case that since, basically, since the U.S., decided to just let all the tax breaks run out, let Puerto Ricans sort of have to fend for themselves and develop their own community and develop their own methods of self-determination and self-governance, that uh, what has emerged on Puerto Rico is a two-sided battle between Puerto Ricans who want to maintain uh, some level of democratic and local control over the land that they have lived on all their lives and which they derive sustenance from, and various communities of land grabbers and crypto pirates and all these other people and former child actors are in there for some reason <laughs> and what have you, mm-hmm. who are all trying to turn Puerto Rico into some kind of Bitcoin tax haven where you can essentially do whatever you want as long as you're a white, privileged American man, basically. And as Karen pointed out, you don't know the names of a lot of these people and you never will. The second largest, um, unless you go looking for it, the second largest uh, bondholder of Puerto Rican debt is, if I remember correctly, a Hillary donor and a hospital group guy in Boston. (sighs) See, I don't even remember his name, and I know who he is. That's how mysterious these people are, but they're the ones who get to appoint the people on the junta who then get to control the government. And if you bring this up, to somebody who's never really faced this kind of situation and uh, doesn't really think in this way, you sound like a lunatic. You sound like you're describing the mythical deep state or you sound like you're describing some Bilderberg group conspiracy theory thing. But right. the yeah, it's thing not, is... It's, it's not a conspiratorial worldview. It's the system we live in that mm-hmm. privileges people who control money and who have you know, the finance bros. You can move money around to these things. Yeah, Um and I think it's it you mentioned, Rich, the the sort of political slap fight over Puerto Rico and, and how it should reform its its economic status and the systemics of that, how that is baked into our culture. And I think it's interesting to point out that even now, even with the repeal of Law eighty, even with all of these uh workers' rights being stripped from them, what you see is you still have David Brooks types, second rate David Brooks types, which there's a phrase, um, <laughs> going in on the little remaining advantages that Puerto Rican workers enjoy over mainland American workers. And you get these writers making cases for, you know, really, this is the fault of the New Deal. It's FDR's fair labor standards that are killing jobs in Puerto Rico. Well, factually, unfortunately, in the system that we live in, That might be true, but it's true because Puerto Rico is forced to depend on a network of American companies that can pull up stakes whenever they want to, whenever labor is cheaper somewhere else, whenever they just feel like it, and therefore is exposed to the whims of, for the umpteenth time this episode, a bunch of people who don't care about the island, who don't know anybody on the island, who literally, if Puerto Rico did the West Side Story thing and sank into the ocean the next day they would lose nothing. And, and there again, we, we go into the pitfalls of statehood because we live in the Rust Belt. We know what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, states have very limited control over their economy. Mm. And, and, you know, Puerto Rico, Arizona, they can pull up stakes at any time. It doesn't matter if they're a state or not. We're still with, we're all within the same system. You know, the, the, the impact of the current territorial status limits Puerto Rico's autonomy, but it's because we live in a, imperial system that limits all of our autonomy the solution is democracy it's equity it's social justice so i think we're going to take a quick break but when we come back i would like noah for you to tell us how are people responding because i imagine that not everybody is taking this lying down karen i would like nothing better hey hey guys you know that feeling you have at work that dead inside feeling Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. 
We are back from our second break this hour, and we've been talking about Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico in the aftermath of decades of U.S. interference in colonialism and uh, disaster capitalism. Uh, And I asked uh, Noah just before the break, what are people doing uh, to stand up to this kind of just overall devastating assault? The shorter list would probably be what aren't they doing. Uh, Luckily, despite everything that we talked about in our last segment, despite all of these forces of darkness that are arrayed against Puerto Ricans and their day-to-day existences, there have been some really marvelous efforts by people from the island, by people from outside the island, to organize communities and um, and create networks of self-governance, networks of self-reliance, where the local and federal governments have, once again, completely failed them. Mm. Um, we talked in the earlier episode. Which, which number episode was that, in case people want to 26. Come back? All right. In episode 26, we talked a lot about the then fairly new teacher strike. Um, can you update us on that? You, Rich, me, we'll all contribute. Um, yeah, I think we recorded that in late April, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Paro Nacional, which was the big strike had not yet happened because that was scheduled for May Day. Mm. You know, symbolically important date. And there was a general shutdown of uh, public schools on that date. There were there was a big march in the Milla de Oro, the Golden Mile, which is where all the big banks are. And basically, a lot of the local people who are responsible for this, uh, for the last 50 years of colonial policy. Mm. And since then... Uh, the teachers, at least one of the teachers' unions, the Federación de Maestros de Puerto Rico, has been fighting to stop school closures, to stop. For the most part, there haven't really been layoffs, but we all know those are coming next. Mm. And to stop the Department of Education from literally herding children into trailers. That was a thing that happened this year where because they no longer had space for all of these students because Mm. they closed their schools down. They simply hired another company and funneled more money outside of the island to get these um, unpowered, unair conditioned, unwatered, just completely devoid of utilities, trailers to serve as classrooms. So, I mean, that doesn't sound that unusual in response to an ecological disaster like a hurricane, but you're saying that they were closing schools, and so an innocent person might say, well, are they closing them because the buildings aren't safe to be in? Or what? It, what's the slightly larger picture that the teachers were responding to? So... In a lot of cases, that was the excuse. The problem is it's wrong. Parents, teachers, students, in many cases, rebuilt those schools when the government would not. Mm. They actually went the extra mile and recreated their own. They, they retook their own public space. They took ownership of it. They made it their own again. And in many of these cases, school buildings were left mostly untouched, and they were still closed because... Quite frankly, as far as we can tell, the Secretary of Education felt it, uh, the school wasn't providing, it, either it didn't have enough students or its location was bad or what have you. Many of these schools were on the smaller side, but so I thought it was like, supposed to be a good thing. Kind of like on the mainland, closing polling places for mm-hmm. really suspicious reasons. The Department of Education in Puerto Rico is pushing this post-disaster, very much like post-Katrina plan, of creating charter schools in place of yep. uh, mm-hmm. public schools. Explicitly. So that was really what they were pushing the teachers. By the way, teachers, administrators school supervisors, everyone united um, in this case to push back against the charterization, which is really a form of privatization of the school system in Puerto Rico. The the only people who benefit from charter schools are finance vultures. They're the ones who tap into schools as a way of extracting more resources from the public sphere and shoveling it upwards. 
Puerto Ricans are, are right to be resisting it because mm-hmm. that's what it's going to achieve. It's going to hurt them, hurt students, uh, hurt Puerto Ricans, and benefit only the very worst people. Which I think is why you have administrators and supervisors who, in many cases, and hopefully this shows up in a future episode, can be counted on to throw their own teachers under the bus. Um, in this case, are many of them on the side of the angels because they see very clearly that you know the the axe will fall on them next. Mm. That the eventual the vision that the Puerto Rican Department of Education has right now is to pair public education in Puerto Rico down to the bone and replace even in in a place that has a fairly large private school uh, population, mm. replace even more public schools with charters or some other uh, form of program to funnel even more money to private organizations. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do have a secretary of education who is literally going around to public schools to remind kids that charter schools are public schools because they take public money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit more, and I'm, I don't remember if I did that on that earlier episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we talk about what's wrong with charter schools, uh, what we're saying really specifically and why Rich says they're just trying to get siphon off public resources is that instead of having your government um, under the auspices of a Department of Education run schools, uh, what you have is a private company coming in to run the school. So they're, they're, they're given taxpayer money. They're given public funds um, to run a school and make a profit, mm-hmm. which is counterintuitive. Um, and the making the profit part of it is really the reason that they're in it. I actually had this discussion recently with, with someone. When we talk about profit, we've spent a really long decades. I'm not kidding about. Well, I keep saying decades, and I'm not kidding about decades. No, we've spent 100% decades true. conflating and misunderstanding what profit is. So whenever the left or progressives have said you don't need that much profit, they come. Companies come back and say, no, 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 it's for research and development. It costs money to run a business. It costs money to advertise your services to get new customers. That's not profit. Those are called operating expenses. Yeah. Profit is what executives take home at the end of the night. Profit is what they brag to their friends about. Profit is the money they take and store offshore never to be put back into a potentially thriving economy. Profit is what they put in their pockets. It's often well beyond what they need to survive, what they need, what they and their families need to thrive. It's just bragging rights at the end of the day. It's waste. It's waste. So what we're saying when we talk about charter schools is we're saying we're going to take taxpayer money. By the way, Public schools are often already unfunded. So we're, we're talking about a pool of money that is already too small to deliver quality services to children. And we're saying we're going to allow a company to come in and use some of that as profit, not to run the school, not to advertise the school to get more customers, not to uh, build for the future, not to leverage their synergies. We're talking about profit for shareholders to take home at the end of the day that they'll probably never even spend, that five generations of their kids will never spend because it's way more than anybody ever needs. I'm sorry. Yeah. This is just colonialism in action, right? Because yeah. it, mm-hmm. it's the siphoning of money explicitly from Puerto Rico, like you said, to mm-hmm. the mainland, offshore, of course, never to be seen again. And that's what we're talking about when we say this is a colonial relationship. Yeah. One of the ways that they do this and make sure that their friends benefit is that they'll rent a building to house the school at above market rates. Yep. yep. And it'll turn out that that building that the charter school is in is owned by a crony of the people who run the charter school. Yeah. I I think you just revealed where all of those new charter schools are going to be housed. I'm guessing they're going to go in schools that were closed and that were identified as as possible future sites. Yeah. And then they cheap out. So Mm -hmm. let's be clear. They cheap out on the education. Mm -hmm. They push, we know from the mainland, and I'm assuming it is a threat 
of something similar in Puerto Rico. They push out children with special needs. Yep, yep. They cherry pick, oftentimes cherry pick the students they allow into the school who are really going to be the students whose parents are educated and who are going to be less problematic behaviorally because they already have a full stomach when they show up in the morning. So they cheap out on what they're doing. They cut teachers' wages. Teachers are no longer unionized. They can't collectively bargain. So at the end of the day, the children are just meat in the seats Mm -hmm. that are necessary to grab the public money and keep your profits. Yeah, that's that's why the trailers are such a dark dark symbol of it it really is just housing children mm-hmm. well and it's not even new i mean there are there have been trailers we're we're yeah. we're doing the show in rochester new york there have been schools utilizing trailers oh sure for I, decades i remember portables yeah, yeah. Portables. Know, in, in my in my elementary school yeah right no i think the important part to mention here is that that wasn't the case right mm-hmm. like that has become the case because of an explicit policy decision that didn't have to be made mm-hmm. because it would be bad enough if it were let's siphon off some of this public money and put it into a privatized you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, arena that would be bad enough if it was just that but the thing is as I mentioned all the way back in the first segment the federal and local governments are taking very active steps to prevent Puerto Ricans themselves from organizing in any way right Mm -hmm. um and by the way the flip side of disaster capitalism is collectivity Mm -hmm. because on the ground people do come together it's not a natural act for people to cut each other down uh i think when a disaster happens in fact the best comes out in people and except (laughs) except the people at the top yep right and we have plenty of stories of that happening in Puerto Rico, uh, Rich provided us with a great article on anarchistic organizers that went to work at this uh, at this community called the Proyecto de Apoyo Mutuo, the Project for Mutual Aid, right. which set up a, a power station and, and a community center. Right, yeah. There's this this town, Mariana, just like the rest of the Puerto Rico, their their power grid was shut down and the efforts to reestablish uh, power were just taking forever. It's like a year. I mean, I mean, try just put yourself in anyone on the island's shoes, being without power for a year. You know, not able to do your laundry, not able to cook really, without undertaking extra efforts to you know do basic chores. Yeah, so that's, it's also like it's also means no kidney dialysis, right? And, and then, right. you know, no healthcare. Back to those numbers yeah, yeah. Of death. Right. And no, that's, that's know, part of the doing reason. surgery by cell phone, like right. Yeah, when we've seen videos of these kinds of things. So this group of mutual aid within Puerto Rico, and then assisted by uh, mainland anarchists as well, established uh, their own power grid for their their community. They established a solar based power grid unconnected to the larger now privatized power company uh and one thing the article took care to point out was that the puerto rican government ran interference on this operation they sent police to uh evict the mutual aid workers from a community center they'd taken over the government wasn't using it was a church was it yeah it it was a church they they evicted them at gunpoint at gunpoint after uh asking them if they were making bombs if they were members of Antifa, right? Yeah, they asked if they were Antifa. That was hilarious. Yeah, and and literally just raided them in the middle of the night. Okay, so here's here's one of the things that this demonstrates that's really difficult, I think, for people to hear and believe. Capitalism is not a natural system. It's natural for people to collectivize. It is not natural for people to take advantage of other people for a kind of personal gain that actually does nothing to increase your quality of life. What I mean by that is like for for a bajillionaire, $5 million versus $3 million changes nothing in your quality of life. So the, 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 the people at the top who are quibbling and scrapping and fighting and arguing for extra on top of that, again, just for bragging rights, it's basically fashion. That is not a natural state for a human being. That is not natural. It's, it's, it's broken. So what we're seeing is capitalism is not actually the natural order of things. It actually requires increasing amounts of, of official violence in order to maintain itself. So what I'm, I'm devastated to hear about this mutual aid group 
that is rebuilding on their own and perfectly capable of doing it, by the way, um, being targeted by the police. So basically what they're saying is it is now illegal to be nice to each other. Yeah, and it's not even the only story about that coming out of Puerto Rico. There's a group named um, Casa Pueblo, which was established by, I think an engineer was his profession, some 30 or 40 years ago, and his son now runs the place. They were the only building with power in the wake of Hurricane Maria in their entire county because they had a microgrid. They've established microgrids for uh, groups of houses that need them. They've established communal refrigerators that people keep in their houses and manage, but that other people can share in. They've uh, linked up businesses and had them sign agreements, you know, for like a barbershop. This is how much you're, you're going to charge because this is what still allows you to, you know, maintain a certain amount of revenue that you can continue to pay your own bills and so on. They've established community radio stations, community cinema. They've become a center of life in their town. And the way that the Puerto Rican government replied to it was by frivolously arresting the founder for, I think, not having a registration sticker on his Jeep. Mm. And then they breathalyzed him and wouldn't show him the test results, but just told him that he was incredibly drunk. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when he asked the policeman, who told you to do this? The policeman started to answer him before his partner said, you don't have to answer that question, mm -hmm. which, if anything, was Indicated. probably more indicative than whatever the guy yeah, was, was about to say. It was a tell. It was the stupidest thing he could have possibly done in that moment, and yet he did. So definitely the federal and local governments are doing everything they possibly can to make Puerto Ricans feel as though there is no escape from this kind of state-sponsored violence, which is ultimately yeah. what this is. By the way, that's not different from the stories I hear in the mainland of governments deciding in certain municipalities that it's illegal to feed the homeless. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not very different from telling Puerto Rico there are only two kinds of crops that you can legally grow. Um, so it's very frustrating to run into people whose only response to this kind of uh, capitalist violence is to say, well, you broke the law, right? And, and, and in mm -hmm. many cases, they didn't break the law. That yeah. guy wasn't drunk. That guy wasn't drunk. He didn't, yeah. he didn't fail the breathalyzer. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's a sorry response to say, well, but the court system works really well most of the time. Mm -hmm. I've never had a problem with it. When false arrest becomes a perpetual tool Mm -hmm. of the state when you create ridiculous laws like it's illegal to feed the homeless it's illegal to put extra money in uh the parking meter when you see the the parking enforcement is about to give somebody a ticket and you run up and you put extra mm -hmm. come on everybody's wanted to do it you run up and put extra coins in the meter F to say that that's illegal to flash your lights right to flash your lights when you know that radar is being run to mm -hmm. warn the oncoming drivers you could get a ticket for that. Mm -hmm. These are all ways in which we try to take care of one another. And they say, no, you, you're not allowed. No, you're not allowed to do mutual aid. You're not allowed to rebuild your school. Mm -hmm. And any defense attorney will tell you that you've committed 12 crimes, you know, just driving to work. Bro I should say broken 12 laws, you know, just driving to work. You know, just the, the process of living is, is criminalized. Mm -hmm. And the, the way it works is if they want to arrest you, they'll find a reason. Yep. You've done something. There's a, a we've we focused a lot on on the subject of law here, and there is I, I s promised I wasn't going to get on a pro independence rant, and I still won't. But I there don't is care a but there is a great well we're running out of time, so that's a much okay, better reason enough. not to. <laughs> but um, there is a pro independence activist and politician in Puerto Rico who one of his famous speeches is titled uh, "To Break the Law of the Empire Is to Fulfill the Law of the Land." And if I've ever heard a better way to describe, you know, the criminalization of uh, standing up for yourself and for your own community. Well, I guess I have heard a slightly better version. I, I really wanted to close on this because I did learn about this from the Battle for Paradise, but it really struck me as something we should say. And if you listen to our Workplace Democracy episode a couple of weeks ago, you heard me say it then too. 
But the head of the teachers union that we were talking about, she's been an absolute tireless organizer in the last year or so. And I imagine before then as well. But she's been crisscrossing the island constantly talking to groups of parents and students and activists and organizers and teachers and school administrators and what have you that come to her uh, tired and worried and scared. And she reminds them always that all of this violence, all of this horror all of this cruelty and brutality that the United States government is inflicting on Puerto Rico, that it is all a choice. It is all a strategy. And most importantly, that if you know that it's a strategy and a choice by the United States government and by the Puerto Rican government, you can defeat it. And if I've ever heard a better summation of what a responsibility is to each other in the face of that kind of no other word but fascism, I can't think of what it is. Yeah, cap- capitalism isn't fortune or fate. It's a system. People manage it. People benefit from it. And if you recognize that, you can come up with counter strategies uh, and ways of thinking that are outside of it and ways to subvert it. Exactly right. So on that note, thank you very much for listening to us today. I'm Noah. I'm Karen. And I'm Rich. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.